This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Nancy Cantor and Christopher Howard. Download the MP3 of our produced show with them at onbeing.org. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Louis Soares. I'm the Vice President of Policy Research and Strategy at the American Council on Education. And I am so excited to invite you and so happy you've joined us for our special session this afternoon, Higher Education and the Future of Citizenship, a Civil Conversation. And um, what the conversation will explore today is the evolving nature of higher education's role in developing citizens in the 21st century. And we have been so fortunate to have uh, a group of uh, a, conversa- a group of discussants to share this time with us, and to then open it up to you for questions. Um, I'll introduce our our host and moderator, Krista Tippett, and she will take us right into the conversation with with her discussants. Uh, Krista is a nationally recognized journalist, author, and entrepreneur. She is the creator and executive director of the Peabody Award-winning public radio program On Being that she describes as a social enterprise with a radio program at its heart. Of uh, more importance to us, or equal importance to us, the On Being is the home of the Civil Conversations Project, an ongoing conversation that is an emergent approach to healing our fractured civic spaces. And as in a recognition of her body of work, um, in 2014, uh, President Obama uh, Honored, uh, oh, gee, oh goodness, Krista, this is a little fan worship here, but that's okay. Um, uh, uh, Krista was honored by President Obama as a National Humanities Medal winner. And in the citation for the award, this is how the, her work was described, she was described. Uh, she thought, thoughtfully delving into the mysteries of human existence, Miss Tippett avoids easy answers, embracing complexity and inviting people of all faiths, no faith, and every background into the conversation. And without further ado, please help me in, in welcoming Krista Tippett. Thank you so much, Lewis. Um, it's really wonderful to be here today. It was a, we were very honored by this invitation. Um, and I, wa- I want to say these chairs are almost too comfortable for us to... To have a really scintillating discussion. So, so if you need us to speak up. Also, if you need to pull the microphone back, I think, Nancy, especially if you want to lean back. Um, we're going to make this happen, but we have a few technical challenges. Um, if you can't hear us for any reason, yell, raise your hand. So um, the notion that we collectively are in the midst of an adventure of recreating common life public life, the meaning of citizen and leadership is a theme that runs throughout my life of conversation on radio. And I've been fascinated in recent years as I've experienced diverse interlocutors reclaiming the language and practice of the citizen scientist, the citizen artist, the language of public theology, just for example. So it was was really exciting as I prepared to be here today to get a glimpse of how you and your institutions are exploring anew the nature of education and civic formation of education for leadership in civil society amidst 21st century realities. 
I want to say just a few words before we plunge into this conversation about the limits I've observed just in the language around this challenge. The fact that we seem to need to reinvent our vocabulary uh, alongside our imaginations. And I suspect we'll touch on this today. I tend to use the language of common life as much as public life. Um, you know, together with public life, because I'm very aware that I think in recent generations we collapsed the meaning of public life to be about political life. And public life is much bigger than that. And I think this, I think this collapse impoverished us. And I'm also aware, as I know you are, that the very notion of the public sphere and therefore the public good is in a state of rapid evolution thanks to our rapidly evolving technologies, which are upending the meaning of basic human experiences like making and leading and belonging, and certainly the meaning of learning. And, and finally, in terms of language, though our way in to, these, to the questions that arise in this moment um, has been focused on what we call our Civil Conversations Project, I also always rush to add qualifiers when I use the word civility. Um, because I think it's made ineffectual by connotations of niceness and politeness. And I, 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 I hear echoes of this in both of your writing as well. I long to reinfuse it with connotations of rigor of thought and robustness of presence, um, civil participation that dares us to bring our best selves as listeners and thinkers and human beings to public deliberation on the important challenges of our age. The critical place of our educational institutions in this work is undeniable. And I'm just delighted to be up here with, in conversation with Nancy Cantor and Christopher Howard. Um, I'm going to introduce them formally in just a moment. I want to just, before that, tell you how this will work. We'll be in conversation up here. Oh, do you know what? I can't, do I have a watch? I'm just realizing, where's the watch? There's a clock. Oh, but it's not on can't see it. <laughs> and I don't have my phone. <laughs> the way I tend to check, is that somebody's phone? It is a phone. Okay, well, let's stay on. I'll let you know if it doesn't. All right. So we are going to be in conversation up here for about 45 minutes. Then we will open up the conversation to you. We'll have a microphone that roams around, which will make it somewhat easier for introverts to participate who would rather not stand up. Um, and uh, I, I really do very much look forward to, to what's on, what the questions and comments you bring. And we will finish on time. Um, we'll, we'll, this, we'll end uh, in this nine, on time. So it's 2.15, and we will end at 3.30. Is that right? Okay. All right. So... Nancy Cantor is an esteemed social psychologist and chancellor of Rutgers University, Newark, which is one of the most diverse institutions in the U.S. She's widely recognized for helping forge a new understanding of the role of universities in society that reemphasizes their public mission. She's been called a bold and visionary architect of democracy's colleges. Prior to her current position, Nancy was chancellor and president of Syracuse University, where she pursued cross-sector collaborations in the city of Syracuse that enriched scholarship and education and spurred transportation in that city. 
She's been the recipient of a Carnegie Corporation Academic Leadership Award, is on the American Commonwealth Partnerships President's Council, and is former co-chair of the Central New York Regional Economic Development Council, a post to which she was appointed by Governor Andrew Cuomo. Nancy Cantor previously served as Chancellor of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and as Provost and Executive Vice President for Academic Affairs at the University of Michigan. She received her BA from Sarah Lawrence College and her PhD from Stanford University. This is a longer bio than I usually read, but I can't tell you how much I'm leaving out. And here's Chris Howard's bio, which which I will leave a similar amount out. Christopher Howard is the 24th President of Hampton-Sydney College of Virginia and is one of the youngest college presidents in the U.S. He previously served as vice president and led the Honors College at the University of Oklahoma and was a vice president of GE's Corporate Initiatives Group. He is a distinguished graduate of the Air Force Academy, a Rhodes Scholar, and has an MBA with distinction from Harvard Business School and an Oxford Ph.D., he serves on the Board of Trustees at Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia, and on the Board of Regents at Baylor University. A lieutenant colonel in the Air Force Reserves, he earned a Bronze Star for service in Afghanistan. He's also an Aspen Institute Henry Crown Fellow and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. President Obama appointed him to the National Security Education Board in 2010. And I could go on and on. But what I did think it was good to illustrate is the breadth of experience that is embodied in these two individuals. So, Nancy, um, you grew up with a love of dancing. I did. And you went to Sarah Lawrence College. You landed there in 1970. And from a civic life perspective, I think 1970 was an interesting time to land on any American campus. So... What I want to ask each of you, I'll just start with you, is um, if you could tell us a little bit about the earliest roots. You know, how do you trace the earliest roots, the formative experiences of your passion? And I want to expansively define this as personal and spiritual as well as intellectual. Um, Your passion for the intersection of education and civic slash public slash common good. So I actually, for me, would trace it back to growing up in New York City. So I grew up in New York City. I took the subway 45 minutes every day back and forth to school. That was an education in public life. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and this was, as you pointed out, during a period of women's movement, anti-war movement, and the civil rights movement. I came from a very socially active family, Those issues were on the table, and we were very involved in the arts, and the arts is is a venue always for bringing together extraordinary diversity and extraordinary public life. So I had, when you were talking about civility and really injecting it with something more than being nice, for me, you know, all you have to do is remember New York City subways, and you know that what public life or civility is about is really not a sugar-coated, laid-back, I mean, think New York City subways, not laid-back. in the thick of it. In the thick of it, exactly. I mean, so when I think of education, I just think of it as it's got to be in the world. It's got to have that messiness. 
And we shouldn't be scared of that messiness. So I, I very much resonate to the notion that civility is not about laying back, covering up, pasting over, whatever the metaphors in, in our world that, you know, I, I think it's so ironic that we live in this world of tremendous turmoil and difference and conflict, and we gravitate towards concepts that are covering things. Right. Yeah, or just not big enough. Just or not just big not enough. big enough, yeah. but I'd say covering. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, sorry, I'm, I need to watch this microphone. Okay, Chris, let me, you, um, I, there's so much that jumps out at me in your story, which is remarkable. I mean, it's very stunning, and you, you say it this way often, that your great-great-grandfather was considered to be property, and that you are now president of a college, and president of a college that was originally created on a plantation. Um, so this question to you also, again, how would you trace the roots of your passion, personal, spiritual, as well as intellectual, for this intersection we're talking about here today? Sure, because I'm, I'm delighted to answer the question and to be a part of this panel, especially with one of my heroes here. I'm, I'm blushing if you all can't see in radio land. I'm actually <laughs> blushing sitting next to Nancy. She's one of my, one of my, one of the, one of the giants uh, in, in the industry. As you can tell, she's a giant in this industry. Um, <laughs> that's the only zinger I get. No more. I'll behave. But I, Chris, I, I think about... Um, the opportunities I've been honored to have and have been given. I take that extraordinarily serious um, to be, as you said before, five generations removed from a slave, from a chattel. I often say that uh, my great-great-grandfather was no different than the seats you're sitting on now. Of course, now this is a pretty nice seat, so I don't know if I need, it has quite the same effect, but I, that, that has informed my life coming up as a young person in Texas with parents who grew up working as sharecroppers in the summer because, you know, black people couldn't get jobs working at a record store or a soda shop at that day and age. Um, my father was a veteran of the Vietnam War. My uncle did two tours. They were both combat veterans, my Bronze Star recipients. And so I saw that there, those uniforms in my closet as a kid. And then uh, I saw a picture of a West Point cadet when I was in seventh grade, going back to the formative years in your life. So here I'm in Plano, Texas. I see a picture of a West Point cadet, and I said, I'm going to be a West Pointer which is, a, you know, I'm thinking about public, the public sphere as public service, as in military service. That's how I came into this. And we'll talk about that probably a little bit more later on. But I wrote a letter to my congressman. I said, I'm Chris Howard. I'm a good student. I'm a good athlete. You need to give me an appointment to West Point when I turn 18. He says, you seem like a bright young man, but I'm not your congressman. <laughs> so I'd written the letter to the wrong person, but he forwarded it. He says, this guy has hope. He can't figure out the address, but I... So I ended up going to the United States Air Force Academy rather than West Point. And um, not because I wrote the letters in the wrong place. It just worked out better that way. But I was always thinking, one to whom much is given, much is also expected. And I think about, I think about the public sector and citizenry and uh, that whole rubric in terms of what is the obligation that I have, that my family has, that my town has, that we as a society have, to ensure that we can have a civilization that we can have a society. So you, that will probably come out into some of the other parts of our comments here. But that's, that's, that's what brought me into that space was uh, the desire to serve so we could ha to honor and to serve. Okay. So, Nancy, I think um, you offered an interesting frame for where we are now. Um, the, there's an association of 
for psychological science profile of you, and and they talked about how you're revered in that field for your work on how we perceive our social environments, pursue goals, and adapt to changing and challenging social settings. And I, I think certainly the language of changing and challenging social settings applies to the field of education, as it does to many of our fields right now. Um, You've also said, along those lines, pardon me if, as a psychologist, I say that that an existential identity crisis, you're talking about an existential identity crisis for education, um, every so often isn't such a bad thing for growth and creativity. (laughs) The Sarah Lawrence girl. Okay, (laughs) that's right. Right. I mean, I, I do think that that it's it's in- instinctive a lot of times to fret about what is difficult and needs fixing and is falling apart and needs reconstructing and we don't know how to do that but i like i like that positive framing of the existential identity crisis that forces us to creativity absolutely so so i think one of the things that we gravitate to too quickly is really the status quo in, in all its richness. I mean, that is, we have norms and traditions and tasks and cultures and ways of being that, that are useful. They're adapted. They let us do things by default. But the fact of the matter is, default doesn't always work, right? And default doesn't always bring everybody to the table. So kind of, you know, maybe again it goes back to the period I grew up in, but it was a period of churning that really put things on, on their heads. I mean, so the Freedom Rides really were a way of saying, at least as a, when I was growing up, it was a way of saying, stop and look and change. When I think of social psychology, I think of people's ability to adapt not by accepting but by pushing back, by a tug of war mm-hmm. between individuals and environments, between groups. It's, it's not a placid sort of way of taking things. And if education means anything, it means to cultivate intelligence, to cultivate a social cohesion and a social spirit, to cultivate that civility you were talking about. Mm-hmm. So to do that, you have to have an active stance to the world. And that's the existential crisis in it. Questioning is, of course, at the heart of education. It's at the heart of learning. But it's not just questioning because you can have the, the answer. It's questioning itself as a process mm-hmm. is good, good for us. Mm-hmm. And we got a lot of questioning to do right now in the world. Because yeah, so yeah. Nancy, when mm-hmm. I was teaching at the University of Oklahoma in Honors College, we had—I like to say it was a great books class. But it was more great paragraphs. We didn't read the whole book. We read, but we read really important paragraphs. And but we wrestled with some great—the great conversation of civilization. And since what's happened in Oklahoma has come up, uh, a lot of my students had written back to me that are doing great things in civil society. They said, You're talking God. about the fraternity, the this recent in the news. The, exactly, yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. That'll make you put this on the air sooner rather than later because it might be relevant <laughs> to what happened. 
But yes, and, and students wrote, have written me and they said, thank you, Dr. Howard. And it wasn't about me. It was about the class, about an environment where we all suffered an existential crisis. We really put it in the, I love your word, churn. It was a blender. It was a beating up of ideas that we had people coming from all different political backgrounds in a very intimate learning environment, a very liberal education experience on a public university campus. And we questioned what we valued and we respected each other. And it just comes from the kind of the Aspen Institute sort of approach to great books. And it was a very, very civil place for us to disagree. And so to your point, I just wanted to just indemnify and support your point to saying that the classroom, the, 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 the institutions of higher learning have a, a unique opportunity to do what you just described. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and this may seem like a simple point, but I, you know, sometimes it's worth saying the simplest things. Our, our educational institutions are the places in the society where we learn to ask good questions, right? where we cultivate that particular skill. Um, but I guess one thing I would push back on that is that when we say that, we often think of the classroom in a, in a cloistered sense. Right. You know, that you have to step back from the world to ask good questions, to be able to do the civil conversation we're talking about. I think the real task right now is to do that in the world. Right. So that the classroom becomes the world. The world becomes the classroom. I mean, and that sounds so right. cliche. No, but, but I, guess, I guess what mm-hmm. I'm saying is also to, but to send students out into the exactly. world who are good askers Absolutely. of better questions. But send students out when they're still students. Okay. Is what I'm saying. Uh-huh. And bring the students of the world in that create that two-way street mm-hmm. of right brokering. in already while the educational experience is exactly. happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's exactly. A, there's, there's, we had a board meeting recently, and I had a, uh, a, a board member say something about our athletic program, and he said that basically a lot of the learning the student life can happen in the athletic program when done properly. It doesn't, to your point, Nancy, you have to be in the wonderful wood-paneled, cloistered room. Uh, things and the, and the tools out there that, that weren't as evident, at least even when I was a, a student at the Air Force Academy in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, experiential learning, service learning. Yeah. They've been around, but I think they're much more a part of our vernacular. I'll add one other piece. What you're hearing now about... Um, getting it right in student life, which is a proxy for the real world, which is a proxy for a civilization, um, is this thing about uh, upstander versus bystander, right? So how do you get someone to... What did you say, upstander? Upstander as opposed to being a bystander. Right. It's kind of intuitive, right? So, but, but a lot of times things are happening on a campus, and it's not that, you, you th- that a student thinks it's the right thing, but how can he or she actually be an upstander and try to you know, address it, to be in the world, to, to bring those values of the civilization right there in the dorm room, in the fraternity house, or what have you? Just, you can use plenty of examples. Um, but that's, not something, that's something that's relatively new and can, can be just as powerful as what you're learning in that calculus class or in that political science class. Right. And, the, and, 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 and actually, tell the truth, last comment, there's a seamless web when done properly that runs through all those experiences that makes you a better citizen in the polis. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we have to teach ourselves and our students that we're real people. Mm. We forget that. You know? Well, well, we and also in, there's a line in the academy. It's hard, right? There's a boundary. 
that there has is. prevailed, and that's and we got to push against that mm-hmm. boundary. Mm-hmm. Again, it's it's about the status quo. Do you take yeah. that boundary as a given, or do you mm-hmm. say we're in a seamless relationship in the world? Right. We have a phrase that, in Newark of saying that anchor institutions, universities as anchor institutions, are not just in their community; they're of their community. Right. So my my favorite quote on that, and and it's very much what Chris is saying, was from Rabbi Yochum Prince, who gave the speech right before Martin Luther King Jr. at the March on Washington. He was a great um, rabbi in Newark at the time, and he said, look, being a neighbor is not just a term. It's not a geographic term. It's a moral concept. What does that mean when we think about education? What if we really thought that being of a community, not just happenstance located in the community, was a moral construct about collective responsibility? It wasn't just that you happened to be there geographically. It was that you were interdependent with community. Uh-huh. I mean, when we talk about issues of race or ethnicity or class or gender, sexuality on campuses and how hard it is to adjudicate that conflict, why do we always think about doing it in and of ourselves? Why don't we do it in community and of community so that we can see the different faces of these issues? So we and have- yeah, Chris, I want to talk a little bit. You, I mean, um, whatever you were just going to say. It wasn't nearly as important as you were going to say. <laughs> All right. You go first. Well, well, you are in such an interesting, fa- you're in a, such a fascinating place from which to, to be ob- observing and participating in this. Um, let me just say a little bit uh, that I've learned. Um, the this, this slogan of your uh, Colleges forming good men and good citizens since 1776, (laughs) (laughs) which you can't beat. Um, But what an interesting perspective you have as the first African-American president of an all-male school and an all-male school that is predominantly white. Yes. And (laughs) in some ways, even the all-male part of it Cuts, it feels more as old-fashioned as anything else. So talk to us about what you're learning and, and also how, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is a wonderful opportunity. It is a, a, an extraordinarily American place. Mm-hmm. It has literally, it was November, you, you took a year off. November 11, 1775 was when the first classes were offered at Hampton Sydney College. And it has traced the arc and trajectory of American history. Because it's been there during the American Revolution. We had two or three students that perished in the American Revolution because the school is actually older than America. Uh, And it's gone all the way through the Civil War and both the World Wars and the Civil Rights Movement. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. So, And and then to have a president who happens to look like me leading a place that happens to be predominantly 
white, it didn't. It's sort of the arc of, 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 of progress. And Dr. King's, you know, the arc of history pinched the word justice. And I guess I'm justice. I guess just call me justice. But, <laughs> but, but it's kind of a big responsibility. That's a very big responsibility. Around, yeah. but, but nonetheless, that, that is a, it's a beautiful thing about America because you know, I didn't choose myself, you know, the, the, the wonderful ladies and gentlemen on the board who uh, are coming from primarily a very Southern tradition saw this as an opportunity. So that, I, I love that aspect. I just now, want to say that they, they you were, you were uh, the, the ceremony took place at the Commonwealth Club in Richmond, Virginia, <laughs> a club which for most of its history had only admitted whites, and you're standing before a portrait of Jefferson Davis. Yes, and a, and a, and a board member said, Dr. Howard, you do know you're standing in front of a picture of Jefferson Davis as you accept the presidency of Hampton Sydney College. I go, it's okay. I said hello to Robert E. Lee on the way in. So it's... <laughs> Not a problem for me, but but that's I mean that's who we are. I mean you're talking about it's not well, easy. And the Nancy, fact that they chose you says something about who they are and who they want to be as well. I, I think so. I think so. And uh, again, I I, I humbly I, I'm I'm such a humble part of this whole thing that is America. I mean, it, it's sort of a cliche, Krista, but I, I love this cliche that, 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 you know, we talked about my origins, the origins of the institution, and that we can remake ourselves and redo ourselves and, and have these existential crises that, that Nancy has pointed out. I, I, I mentioned the Civil War piece um, because it is, part of the, it is part of the American experience and part of what forms us and, and settles who we are. And the, one of the uh, last battles as Lee was retreating back to uh, Appomattox happened not too far from Hampton, Sydney. In addition, fast forward to the Civil Rights Movement, Prince Edward County was a county that rather than integrate, they decided to uh, shut down the schools for five years. A woman named Barbara Johns was at a school called the Moton, Moton School, R.R. Moton School, who went on to become the second president of Tuskegee Institute. Um, she and her classmates walked out of their high school in the 50s, uh, and that led to be part of the Brown, one of the Brown versus the Board of Education decisions. Then you had the, the Brown decision, and rather than integrate, they closed the schools now. Now, to your point about it doesn't have to be uh, town and gown separately, that is a civil rights museum in our town. In our town. And so we've been working as an institution of higher learning dedicated to forming good men and good citizens, to get our, uh, a good chunk of our student body, including Professor Unsinger, your classmate is a big right, part of this yes. from Yale, <laughs> yes. getting our students to go to that center and to learn about Barbara Johns and the struggle, the civil rights uh, ju- uh, struggle, in a town that they're growing up in now that has residual effects of that. And so it's powerful for me personally, but what a great opportunity for us and also Longwood University, which is also in our town, um, to be able to use the, uh, the edifices of, of higher education to instruct us on, 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 the, on the, uh, the, the arc of our journey to be who we are today. Right. Such and, powerful. And how would you talk about this vantage point that you have from the, 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 the nature of this institution? Um, you know, how does it inform your thinking about these issues of diversity of all kinds um, and and education and forming people, forming students also to be members of civil society. Sure. I, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to that quickly. So, you know, I think we're, we've quoted Dr. King twice, and so it won't be a good talk unless we do it maybe 10 times, because when you talk about our nation, he was our storyteller in so many ways. And one of the things that King did, if you go back, it's the 50th anniversary of the King's letter from a Birmingham jail, or 51st anniversary. He was so adroit at because he was very well educated at Morehouse College and then Boston University for his doctorate, I believe. 
he understood the, the sacred texts that inform our civilization and our society. And he used those words, especially with clergy, to say, you need to be in this. You know, I don't care if it's Aquinas or Augustine or Frederick Douglass or whomever. He used those words kind of against us. And so at a place like Hampton, Sydney, which has all these, I didn't mention this, it's James Madison's birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. Madison. He's 264 years old. He was on our original board of trustees, <laughs> as was Patrick Henry. Well, Patrick Henry's children went, went to Sydney. Seven of his sons went there, yeah. but Patrick Henry was on our board. Yeah. Now, they're not on our board anymore. We kicked them off because they don't give us any more money. <laughs> but they were on our board, and you think about the words of the Constitution, the words of Patrick Henry, um, the words that have informed the students that have been there for years. If you read what's on the, te- on the piece of paper, there's no reason why someone who happens to look like me should not be president, if I said that correctly. You know, and that's going back to the King's legacy is that if you look at the text, we're all created equal, right? Mm-hmm. Born with certain inalienable rights. That's, that's Mr. Jefferson down the road at UVA, but we'll quote him as well. We'll take some credit for UVA as well. So that's, that's why I feel like it's not as much of a surprise. Okay. Um, I guess I'm I just want to name the fact that I, I realize that this is not a conversation about education, just in terms of what is being learned in the classroom. That what you're both really stressing and doing in your own context is talking about education writ large as the entire experience, the social life as well as the intellectual life that happens in those years of education, and also the relationship between the institution and the world around it. Um, I, Nancy used that word a minute ago, cultivation. That's an important word for you when you think about what education should be about. And again, what I, I think education writ, writ large. Um, you've talked about uh, the, the task of increasing diversity in higher education, which is generally um, framed as a problem, which, which it is. I mean, that's one way to talk about it. But you said that the, the uh, discourse tends to be about how to this is your language, pluck the exceptional survivors from our fractured landscape where opportunity is reserved for a select few, but you'd like to see us talk about changing the opportunity matrix by building communities and cultivating talent. Absolutely. It's all about cultivation. So if you think back to John Dewey, I I always think of Dewey as, as the absolute canonical educator philosopher of, of public life and of, and of what we ought to be about. I mean, so Dewey said several things that are really relevant, I think, to this conversation. I mean, one is that education is about cultivation. Put it in our terms now. We're not about taking what's already made. We're not about taking talent that's obvious. We should be about cultivating, seeing talent that might be otherwise invisible. I see this in Newark, New Jersey all the time. We had this amazing Grad Nation Summit of students in or youth in Newark who are supposedly disconnected. As our wonderful Mayor Raz Baraka said, they're not disconnected, they're often connected to the criminal justice system. And These students were the most brilliant, and I call them students. They're not in the seats right now, but they will be. There was such talent there. They taught us more than sitting and listening to high SAT, selected, 
individuals that might easily be in our seats. It's our job to find those students. The other thing that Dewey always talked about is knowing by doing. We have to know by doing. We have to be out in community and of community to really be able to know what talent is, what the future is. You know, you, you yeah. mentioned that diversity mm-hmm. is often glossed in a in a problemat- a language of problematics. It should be glossed in a language of opportunity. I mean, Chris is talking about the Civil War. Lincoln and Justin Morrill created the great public land grants, and then in the Second Morrill Act, the HBCUs of this country, in the midst of as divisive a period in this country's history as you could get. And they did it specifically because they wanted the sons and daughters of the agrarian industrial communities to have opportunity to learn how to barn raise, to learn how to do it together. And to me, that metaphor of the land-grant institutions, whether you're public or private, liberal arts, two-year institution, four-year institution, it doesn't matter. It's so relevant today. It's our responsibility to cultivate opportunity as if we're planting in the ground. You know, the farmers I know in northern Michigan doing cherry farming in northern Michigan where I have a cabin do not know when they see that cherry on the tree if it's going to taste good. They figure out a way to cultivate what is there. We've stopped doing that. We've gotten lazy. Chris, you're shaking your head no, a great vigorously. Point. Well, my, my, my parents uh, went to a land-grant school at HBCU. They went to Prairie View A&M. Right. And so, but for the work of the Morale Act of 1862 and, or 1868, and what you talked about, Nancy, I, I would not be sitting in this seat. And so I, I, I get it. And, I, and this whole idea of cultivation, you talk about Dewey, that is so spot on. I, I'm on the board of an of a, of a organization called Carolina for Kibera, which helps in the, one of the worst slums in Nairobi with uh, health care and leadership and sports, leadership development for young people and some sports work. A, a guy named Ry Barcott, who went to UNC, um, started this wonderful program, and, and it, the mantra is um, uh, op- talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not everywhere. Talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not everywhere. And there's so much work now that's been done. I think the Council on Foreign Relations, a lot of people talked about you know, so much of your life is dictated by your zip code. And, and what kind of society or citizenry or civilization can we have if you can just say you come from this zip code – Ergo, your life is going to end up at name the top institution, name the top job or whatever, perceived job, what have you. What does that mean for those that are not in? So, and I like what Nancy said. She's coming from a, a very, you know, from a public university. I'm coming from a private institution. We have common cause here. You talk about the commonplace, the commons. I love yeah. those terms. Yeah. We have common cause here because if we don't do it right, if we don't extend ourselves, if we don't get uncomfortable it's not going to change. Mm-hmm. It's never going to get better. So would you say a little, I, I just have to say, I, as we're speaking, I, I'm really curious about what you're all thinking and what you'd like to ask. So we'll, we'll just talk for a few more minutes up here and then we'll um, open it up. I wonder if before we do that, if you would both say a little bit about what you're involved in in your institution, how you're able, being able to uh, 
apply this vision in your very different contexts. So why don't you start, Chris? You were- oh, sure. I'm happy to. So, again, we, we, we have um, the luxury of being sort of older than America. And we have a lot of the luminaries of <laughs> the American... Burden or the, the burden and the luxury, right? Um, you know, it's like the president of William & Mary once said, Taylor Reveley, who's, whose father went, ran Hampton, Sydney, uh, and actually segregated, uh, integrated, excuse me, but he'd say the best thing about William & Mary is they're like, you know, 400 years old. The worst thing about William & Mary is that they're 400 years old. <laughs> so, right. you know how that goes. Right. But, uh, but we, we, we have a, 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 an institute uh, center at, at Hampton, Sydney Col- College called the Wilson Center for Leadership in the public interest. Yeah, I noticed that, yeah. This is interesting, Kristen. Yeah. So leadership in the public interest. And, and this guy, Sam Wilson, was a guy who at age 16, um, uh, went to, when, the, when Churchill gave his famous speech um, to, to the call to arms for Britain, this guy walked 10 miles. You can't make this stuff up. Walked 10 miles or 12 miles um, and vo- lied about his age, volunteered for the National Guard, ended up being the youngest Army officer in World War II, was one of Merrill's marauders, went all the way up and became a three-star general. Never went to college. He came back and became the president of Hampton City College because he's from Rice, right down the road. And he pushed for this thing about leadership, leadership and citizenry. It's one of our most popular centers, and it, it is the um, embodiment of a lot of things you're talking about where we do experiential learning, service learning, learning courses that uh, touch on constitutional law along with our government and foreign affairs department. And it's just our ROTC programs there. Um, I'll mention one quick, one other. We do a lot of public programming with the town, Right. Um, we actually sponsored the Leadership Farmville program, which is great in terms of building new citizens. But we did a, a program last year because we haven't talked about millennials yet. This is very important. Yeah, okay. We're talking to the wrong Let's program. Let's do it. We're, yeah, we're, 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 we're all lost cause, man. You know, Let me it's, just it's ask young you, folks. You know, yeah, so gonna, the, yeah. the college is pr- um, predominantly so like 93% white. No, it was. It's about, was. It, when I showed up, it was about 20% non-white male now. It was really? about 7% when I arrived. Okay. Yeah. And the, what about the town? Oh, the town is... Flipped. It's, flipped. it's more, it's okay. more African-American. Okay. Yeah. Then keep so, going, yeah. And my life is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but I was going to say that we, and I'll bring this into the millennial piece. So we had a uh, civil conversation uh, on, on uh, politics and policy, and you were, we brought two Hampton City alum, four alumni, uh, two that were Democrat, two that were Republicans. One had been a Deputy Secretary of Education under Bush two. one had been Deputy Secretary of Education under Obama, hmm. and, uh, and the other gentlemen were also very, you know, very thoughtful public leaders. And we had this conversation about, about policy and politics, and, it really, and, it, and I guess because it was a professor on the stage, they started talking about Madison and Jefferson and these ideas and ideals of our society and, and our civilization. It was wonderful. Our students were really, I mean, they actually only looked at their, at their uh, uh, phones about 12 times, not 35 times, but only 12 times. They paid attention to that <laughs> because there were actually people that had come from before them and had been, on, had been at Hampton Sydney before. But that is kind of the Delphi. That is our center of our universe when it comes to promoting good citizenry, and it's prominently featured on the sta- uh, on our campus, and it becomes a, a wonderful epicenter for what we're trying to do. So our Wilson Center for Leadership and a Public Interest is a manifestation of much that has been said on stage today. Mm-hmm. You know, I watched a speech you gave. Um, it was Aspen Challenge Den- in Denver, and it was mo- looked like mostly high school students yes. in the room. Really interesting. Um, you talked about... Uh, well, you you, talk, you talked about the your your five Bs, <laughs> yeah. and we don't have time for all of them no, now. But one of them was was humility. Um, 
which is really a, a classic virtue that I think has a lot of depth and nuance is totally lost in the way it's used in modern uh, discourse. You, you've also talked about, you know, Hampton Sydney uh, at one point was known as a finishing school for Southern gentlemen. But you, I really like the way you talk about the word gentleman. You say the operative word is gentleman. Would you talk a little bit about how you, what that means for you and how you're implementing that as part of culture? Yeah, sure, and I'll talk a little bit probably about humility as well. But uh, So the, the term gentleman is problematic amongst uh, many people. It conjures up something that sounds very old-fashioned. Yeah. And uh, you feel like you should have a, you know, a glass of lemonade and a big long white bid, and you know it just doesn't quite fly. A lot, especially a lot with my faculty members. But this whole idea of a gentleman, which means that you don't intentionally do something to harm others, so to walk through life and not intentionally do harm to others is pretty cool. And I and I think that young men they can get their minds around that. And so I I, I like that. And and the whole idea is that we have these terms that have been around for a long time. How do we come up with a 3.0 or 4.0 version of them? Uh, they're gonna st- some of these things, they should stay in our vernacular. Some of them should be thrown away right, right. You know, a long time ago. But some of these things can just be upgraded, up- updated and upgraded. And I like doing that with our folks on our campus. And, and, um, and again, the thing about humility, my last point about humility is, um, is I talk to my students uh, and, and to my two sons. I'll say things like, you know, I have been 20. You have never been 46. <laughs> you know? I mean, I've seen some stuff that you haven't seen. So when we take our respective roles as chancellors and, and presidents, as parents, as citizens, we've got to be humble. It was what Michael Beschloss was talking earlier about as a, as a student of the, of the presidency, that presidents are well-served to appreciate history. Uh, human beings are well-served as citizens to be humble, have a dose of humility, because there's so much that we just don't know, a law of unintended consequences, et cetera. And so I, I think that's a good virtue, I guess, for us to live by in, 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 this, uh, in this wonderful world we live in together. Mm-hmm. And um, Nancy, I wonder if you would just talk a little bit about the, the work you did in Syracuse, um, which I think you're you know, building that and kind of taking what you learned there to Newark, but um, very much kind of a, a, a very serious, in-depth, multi-year project in really giving legs to this idea about connecting the educational institution to the world around it. So I think the most important thing really is to jump off Chris's notion of humility. When we do publicly engaged scholarship as universities, when we do community-engaged learning, when we do... Sur- I don't actually like the word service learning because it connotes a kind of one-way street of altruism as opposed to a genuine collaborative relationship and engagement. But the key phrase is humility. And let's face it, universities are not great at being humble. Right? <laughs> this does not come naturally to us. And what we took as principles in Syracuse, and we definitely take in Newark, although every place is its own, and so we do the work differently, is that our role was to be a collaborator with a community of experts, some with pedigree and some not. I learned more from the wisest grandmother in the Ninth Poor Census Tract 
in the near west side of Syracuse than I've learned in all of my many, many years in academia. And how? When she said to me. Yeah, go on, go on. When she said, Nancy, ask us. We lay our head down here at night. Mm hmm. Yeah, so my question was, how did you, what was the structure by which you created a relationship so that you were listening to her and she could speak her truth to you? Yes. So what we did is we created in Syracuse, in the near west side of Syracuse, a 501c3 through which everything flowed. So it was heavily dominated by residents, by the local parish priest who was the best activist on the face of the earth, by, or on the face of wherever, by, by the business people, by local government, by deans and faculty and students and artists and residents. Residents, residents. They had control. It was democracy in action. It was incredibly messy. What was the 501c3 called? It was called the Near West Side Initiative or the SALT District for Syracuse Arts, Literacy, and Technology District, a playback to Syracuse having been a SALT industry center. What was really important about that, and we're doing the same kind of thing in a very different way in Newark with our Newark City of Learning Collaborative, that is going to raise the post-secondary attainment rate of residents of the city of Newark from an abysmal 13% to 25% by 2025, there are 60 different nonprofits sitting around that table. There's two-year institutions and four-year institutions. There are students. There are disconnected youth. There are connected youth. There's everybody sitting around the table. That is the key. The key thing for sustenance and sustaining this work is that we are one of many communities of experts. We're not the cult of the expert, as Harry Boyd says. We are on the ground, one among many. The other thing we did is that we mixed all kinds of disciplines. So there were educators, there were artists, there are, there are scientists, there are politicians, there are there are the people who usually don't talk to each other and who never listen to citizens. And it's our job. The best thing a university can do is convene that kind of messy hmm. collaborative infrastructure. And that's the kind of thing that will last forever. The lesson I most learned from years of consulting with the National Science Foundation was a day where I was consulting on civil infrastructure, of all things. I'm a social psychologist, and they bring me in to consult on civil infrastructure. And I say, okay, let's start. What is civil infrastructure? And the scientist, the engineer, rears up, and he says, oh, it's large things attached to the ground. I said, okay, that's great. Now that we have, now that we have this technical definition. We need to make the equivalent of social infrastructure in our communities and of our communities. We need large things attached to the ground that will last, that people can use, that people can come to and cross over in, can be a part of. I really believe that the best thing universities can do 
is create third spaces of collaboration for our students, for our faculty, for our staff, and most importantly, for our citizens and for every money around us. Places where people genuinely come without pedigree, even with pedigree. And that is not easy, and that goes back to humility. Well, and Nancy, you and I had this phone call um, as homework before we had this, and we got in a little conversation about technology. And I wasn't there because um, I didn't want any of the conversation to happen on the phone call and not here. Oh, you <laughs> so now wish. you're sharing. Yes. We're going to bring a little bit of here. If it's yeah. okay with you, Krista. Was we, because these, sort of, these, these large edifices, the, it's beautiful. I mean, the, the Tocqueville would, 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 would find common cause with what you just said. Um, in some ways, technology makes it more likely to happen in the sense that you can get this reach and stretch and touch its breath, right? Yeah. But, and, but the ability to get the depth necessary, you were talking about that with Dewey before in the call and what have you, the ability to get the depth to make it real and not fleeting and sustaining, sustainable rather than just sort of a flash in the pan, that's what concerns me. I like the technology piece because it gets people doing some things that they would not have done. So small, small beer, but in our campus we do our elections uh, online. And we had, I think the last election, we had for our student body president, not a big student, large student body, but like 85% of the folks, 80%, mm-hmm. something like that, uh, voted. And that's, that is a, that's a, that is a you know, societal, the term you use, institution, whatever, that's great. Um, but um, technology doesn't always work that way. I, I, yeah. I, I'm, that's my concern. Is it just going to be uh, that thin and that broad and not have the depth that we need exactly. to do the things that you're talking about? I mean, how do you bring difference? How do you bridge difference? Well, and technology doesn't doesn't replace human presence and flesh and blood convenings. Although it can be a catalyst for making things happen that wouldn't have happened. It can be a catalyst for bringing people to the table. It can be a catalyst for continuing conversation, Mm -hmm. but it cannot instigate Bridging difference. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't Well, the work. other thing is that, that takes time. Right. It takes time. It takes safety. It takes feeling mm-hmm. comfortable. Right. Now, of course, we say this now, but we, we can't, I mean, I'll go back. It's funny because our provost is in the audience right now. Uh, the provost candidate that came before him who wasn't nearly as good as Dennis was. was <laughs> he, said, could you, he said, could you imagine a world where, you know, even... 15 years ago that you could take something out of your pocket. I can't find it. Imagine, you know, my phone's in here somewhere. Oh, yeah. Ask it a question, hold it to a sky, and give it an, and have it give you an answer. And to get really angry if it didn't give you an answer what, in three seconds, right? <laughs> right? So what I'm saying is if we fast forward 10 years from now, from now, could technology be so, it's already ubiquitous, but it could be so centrally perceptive and the singularity thing where, where it almost is a present. So you are... Convening in a way we're talking about, mm-hmm. creating a sense of community, but doing it through technology because technology is so much better. But the uh, problem with technology is that it doesn't solve, it doesn't create, but it doesn't solve the problem of self-selection. Mm, we yeah. select ourselves into environments that are so homogeneous that how do we build and care for democracy oh. in that context? So here's the other thing you didn't hear. In the phone conversation, Krista, was so that bridges to this thing, the Franklin Project. I just mentioned that real quickly before we go to the audience. 
So the yeah, Franklin yeah. Project, yeah, and I think it's germane. Yeah. I'm going to make it germane if it's okay. not. not. <laughs> so the Franklin Project was started by, he likes to call himself Citizen Stan McChrystal, not just General Stan McChrystal, who you all know from his time at uh, Joint Special Operations Command, U.S. Central Command, served his country in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, he has thought about, he was walking around after the, after the war and people would say, thank you for your service. And he said, there are other people serving at City or, or Teach for America or Peach Corps, or many of the other places that are sort of the glue of civil society. And he had this idea of, we call a service year. So it's one year for young people to commit themselves to serving their, the country or the globe, particularly the country, is a civic rite of passage. And the goal is I'm on the leadership council with a bunch of other very interesting people um, age tw- um, to create a million new opportunities for the service year for young people age 18 to 28 in the next, I think, like five, about the next eight or ten years. And, for example, so for Teach for America and AmeriCorps it's their, and Peace Corps, they're all oversubscribed by a multiple of 10 or 20. Well, I was going to say, I think this generation was so go for that. They are going for it. Exactly yeah. right. They yeah. want to do yeah. that. They want, they, they want that civic right. So in terms of creating, so how do you erase a zip code? It used to be go to the Army or play, peewee, play Little League Baseball. And that would give you an opportunity to mix it up, men and women, especially with Title IX, which makes it even better, men and women to mix it up and learn that when you fall down, everybody's blood's the same color. Um, you know, when you're in the foxhole together and getting shot at, you're all trying to be safe together. But I think the Franklin Project from the Aspen Institute and, and, and uh, these other opportunities have a, give us a chance to erase zip codes in a positive way, working for an affirmative goal that's through for the shared better. Through shared service. Wow. Yeah, through shared service. Thank yeah. You. All right. Well, let's open this up. Um, here's a microphone. Lewis has a microphone. and. Um, Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Mandisa Silo. I'm from South Africa, from an institution called uh, the Cape Peninsula University of Technology. I, when I just reflect on the civic engagement movement, um, I tend to think that it has managed to be successful in really brewing some high level of consciousness um, to general society, but predominantly also in, in, in higher education. And I think from my eyes, what I do observe are really two worrisome issues. Firstly, it seems to take a very individualistic approach where you find in institutions um, either the individual academic driving uh, civic engagement initiatives or the individual institution driving that. And there's a lack of the academy really rallying around around a, a civic engagement. So I guess my question is, how has higher education in America systematically committed to, uh, to, to civic engagement, particularly when it comes to the bottom line, because, and, and which is my second area of concern. When you look at the bottom line, and I'm referring particularly mm-hmm. to resources that are thrown at this movement, um, financial and otherwise, sometimes you beg to question what is the commitment. My questions are two tiered. Can I go on with the second one? Quickly, y- yeah. Also, just quickly, perhaps maybe your view of the relevance and uh, pace, perhaps, of not only just civic engagement, but global civic engagement. So more on global citizenship. Thank you. Well, my wife's from South Africa, so Njani. 
<laughs> That's all I know. Don't say anything else. I only know one word. So, but uh, I think that America, and we bring over. We have also we have a program called Impact and Lies. So for ten years, my wife and I have been bringing ten South African students of color, disadvantaged students, to come to and spend two, three weeks in America, talking about civil society. It's developing global minds today to solve global problems tomorrow. And so we think about this in a, in a binational context all the time. She's the director. I'm on the board and stuff. So thank you for teeing this up. Um, so I think what America has going for it in terms of this, whether it be triple bottom line or, in, or investing in civic engagement and so on, so on, is that at our core, we believe in order to be great, we have to be good. And even though we don't get it right all the time, there's something in our gut that pulls us toward that. I'll just use one example, then I'll, I'll let Nancy jump in here. So when a lot of the, when, when it looked like uh, what was happening on Wall Street, uh, and it was on the Wall Street Journal when all these companies were doing all these corrupt things, but like you're reading a police blotter rather than police report rather than reading in the Wall Street Journal, um, MBA students, business students, M- MBA, Master Business Administration students, in the finest universities around the country came up with a pledge that they want to bring value, not just profitability. And they took a pledge. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, There was a wonderful movement where almost like a military officer takes an oath of allegiance. It was an oath to think about, we're going to bring value, not destroy our civilization just to make money. And so that's just one anecdotal piece. But this is that next generation that says, we have an obligation to get this right. And how do we do that? We're going to, and they use technology to leverage this, but this is how we get it right going forward. And I think it's a combination of our, our history, our pigheaded history that says we want to be good in order to be great. And then young people standing up. And that, that gives me um, um, a, a great sense of hope. So I want to jump off on both parts of your question. Let me start with the latter. And that is the notion of the local and global and what's the relationship there. We are starting, for example, in, in Newark, New Jersey, a, an honors living learning community dedicated to the notion of local citizenship in a global world, largely for students from Newark and greater Newark. By the way, the invisible talent that we often fail to cultivate and need to see at the table. And the idea there is that their authentic local knowledge will have so much global resonance, and it will bring voice to a set of students that might otherwise be ignored and avoided and and left out and marginalized. What is particularly clear to me in Newark is that all the challenges of an iconic American city with all the questions of the great migration from the South and now all the newest Americans in all forms of immigration are sitting there facing the same challenges that those whom I work with in South Africa, and I'm part of a national science collaboration, it's a national science foundation collaboration between the U.S. and South Africa, the same challenges are there. But they're very nuanced in a local setting. And if we're going to really empower that next generation, we have to be with it locally and then make the connection Mm. globally. Mm. And then getting to your question of what kind of resources, that to me is the key. Until American higher education sees publicly engaged scholarship 
and publicly engaged learning and education as central to our mission, we won't put the resources that really need to be put to make these things work. It doesn't mean that we have to pay or own everything. It means that it has to be valued. Faculty have to get tenure for it. Students have to be honored for it. Citizens of the city or the rural town or wherever you are have to feel that they have a foot in the door of the institution and its resource base. We have to use procurement locally. We have to support, for example, in Newark, we are working with minority and women-owned businesses that need to thrive in the city of Newark and that we have so much potential for connecting to. So it has to be a sense of genuine value placed rather than simply investment. There's a lot of talk about social investment, social investing, and I think that's incredibly important. But for higher education, we've got to value it. We have to think it's our job. It's our mission. I'm, I'm smiling because when we bring the kids from South Africa over, we, we go to Newark quite often, usually maybe 60% of the times we brought the kids over going to Newark. Back when Corey Booker's old buddy of mine when he was you mayor. You to come see me. Hey, you send me an invitation. I'm there. I'd love yeah. to come down. you got to come see me too. Yeah. Now, so when we, when we go up, we used to go visit with Corey when he was mayor, Corey, Corey Booker, great guy. And uh, I remember driving through with my wife and with these you know, 8, 10, 6, 10 kids from South Africa, driving through Newark. Yeah, Nia, this feels like Joburg, baby. Exactly. This feels like Josie. And they're like, get all excited. Seriously, you can take them. We take them to Wall Street. We take them to you know, UPS headquarters in Atlanta. But when they come to Newark, they feel like, wow, we've come around the world to come home. And then they start communicating with some of the uh, business leaders, with the Cory Bookers. We didn't go to the university. We will next time. You but they start, they start feeling like the, I see something similar. And so the, the, the ideas start cross-pollinating. You put them with some other young people. And then Absolutely. that's where technology is really neat because then they can stay in touch afterwards. Absolutely. So we've seen that happen literally. But as they got to meet first. They got to meet. No, you're absolutely right. They got to meet first. Yeah. Thank you. Kevin Snyder from Penn State, New Kensington. You know, in many societies, some of the societal shifts in civil society come from students. It's almost kind of ground up. And in here, if there's a generation of students that ought to be voicing and questioning, back to your original uh, opening statement there, you'd think it'd be this generation, where wages are stagnant, the amount that the public is investing in their education is going down drastically and putting a burden on their backs, the benefits they can enjoy... Uh, when they graduate and get jobs, uh, are going to be dramatically reduced. Um, it just seems like they, they should be rising up more than they are, uh, voting, uh, demonstrating, things like that. And so sometimes when I talk to these students, um, there's almost a sense of not even being interested. And I'm wondering if we're doing something wrong. And I'm wondering if you might have some ideas about what's happening here and what our role should be uh, in this environment. So, so, to me, there's sort of two pieces to that. One is, if we're doing something wrong, it goes back to, ironically, in my view, the narrow careerism of our, of our approach. So we, we operate from the notion that jobs are hard to get, and therefore, what that then seems to equal is that education has to be narrower and narrower, 
to be better for those jobs, when in fact what we know and surveys of corporate leaders all over the country and the world say this, is that education actually has to be broader and broader to incite and excite the next diverse generation who will in fact turn things around. So we have a responsibility to broaden the experience and deepen it. And in that's where I would say to put students in community, on the ground, experiencing the kind of uncertain entrepreneurial risk-taking environment that they're going to have to go into and lead. And in particular, and this is where I always come back to our responsibility to have a diverse set of talent at the table, we know that innovation comes from diversity, and yet we don't spend the time getting that mix of perspectives that would get the excitement going that you're talking about. The other quick thing I would say, and then turn to Chris, is, is that actually I think our students are deeply engaged in the world and want to be. I just think we have to value it. I've never had students not want to engage in the kind of community-engaged projects that we did at Syracuse or that we're doing in Newark. They flood to them. They very much want to. It's, it's often the faculty and the administration that are pulling back and narrowing the sights of those students. Now, when I was a kid in college, we just wouldn't put up with that. We just said, we're in, we're in there. We're in the administration office. Get out. We're doing this. And, of course, we've all experienced that. But, but I think it, it's really the case that there, the spirit is absolutely there. Hmm. I, think they, I think that a couple things. One is, there, for young people, there is some degree of apathy. And young people tell me that. And so you, you see it sometimes in the classroom and, and, and what have you. And you, you, oh, gosh, I wish people were a little bit more engaged. So you see some of that. But on the flip side, to your point, Nancy, you see uh, hyper-engagement. But the thing is, they engage differently than we did. The, there was an article right. in The Economist a couple um, issues ago that said that, uh, um, you know, the, the death of the protest you know, um, even the Wall Street uh, thing a couple years ago. It's just, it's not like it was in the 60s and 70s. You think about the Selma March, you've been mentioning the freedom, uh, the, the, the freedom buses and what have you, freedom riders, yeah, excuse yeah. me. That is not the way it's going down now, even though, as the gentleman pointed out, society, young people may feel sort of similar type pr- pressures on them. So we have to indemnify, expect, and respect that they're going about it differently. I'll make one final point on this. Uh, the idea of the citizen sector, Peter Drucker talked about the citizen sector, the proliferation of the 501c3s. Uh, there are, first off, that's a unique thing in America mm-hmm. that you can pretty much hang your shingle and say, and as long as you convince the IRS and the, state, the Secretary of State in your state, I'm going to hang my shingle and I'm going to go after that problem. The number of young people that found 501c3s, exactly. now probably because of technology. It's really exactly. a really fascinating point. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, it's exactly. a very different form that this is taking. Right. Yes. Yeah. 
but it, it's just as vibrant. It is it vibrant, is. and it makes sense for their generation and how right. they do things. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I've sat on the selection committee for the Rhodes Scholarship a couple of times, and it's kind of surprising when kids don't, when they, when they don't, when they haven't started right. a 501c3, <laughs> and when they have started a 501c3. Right. Yeah. You know, how old are you again? 15? Yeah. Really? <laughs> when did you start this thing? So I just think right. that, that they're, they're doing it differently, um, and so we need to respect that and indemnify that and, uh, and support it. Mm-hmm. One more question? Down here. Here's one. Oh, here we go. In an age of evidence, um, hi, Nancy, how are you? It's good to see you again. Um, In an age of evidence, what are the metrics around civic engagement that we as leaders can take back out into our communities to talk about success? And to talk about and to motivate mm-hmm. our students to take this as part of their um, repertoire, their their skill pack into the future, because they've experienced the transformation of uh, you know any particular problem by virtue of applying to it. So it's not only about the the, the money making opportunities; it's about that satisfaction level, and it's about measuring it for communities, so that once again, as we start to answer the question and compile the metrics around why a college education, why especially a residential college education, um, how do we make our case for adding to that? civic engagement in, in a large and very diverse way. Nancy, can I start with this one and then you can pick it up? Because I'm, I'm going I'm to be uh, very micro in my approach and let my, my wonderful colleague be more macro uh, on, on this topic. So one of the things that I've been doing with young people as I've entered it, even as a mentor when I was in industry and in the military, nonprofit, and now as an educator, is that I want them to have a sense of agency. That is a very, and you could probably distill in some metrics, but I'm going to be a little bit more sort of spiritual about it. Um, so when, when people on our campus, students on our campus want to do something, I like to make, their, make sure that our administration, our faculty, our alumni help them do that. Because I want them to know that if they do A, and it's not against the law, <laughs> that B can happen, <laughs> Right. And I think in terms of civic engagement, stepping into your community, you want people that are on a, in a school system that's not working well to run for school board or to do something to affect change in that school system when they've graduated from the institution to make a difference. You want them, you can, you want them to do the same thing with a, uh, maybe a corporation is, is misappropriating uh, land or something like that. You want them to be able to say, I can do something about this. Or even inside the firm themselves. They can be working for a company and say, I want to, this is not right, and I, not out of hubris, but out of responsibility, make a change. And that's agency. Agency, agency, agency. And, and, and getting that in a more macro level or making sure that we as a society are marching in the right direction and knowing that we're having progress, um, probably people that are better at that than I am. But I do know that in my gut that that's what, what I want. I want men and women to walk off a campus and be able to know that if they do A, they can have B happen and they can have some input and control because a lot of places in the world people just don't have that. Mm-hmm. They simply do not have any sense of agency and they think they, you know, they don't think they're ever going to get it. And, and so I think that's something we have an opportunity to do in our society. I'll leave it at, at that level. I wonder if Nancy might be able to helicopter up and well, make it even. Well, actually, I want to jump right off that maybe helicopter <laughs> up. And that is to say, 
What I would add to that is a sense of being comfortable in diverse environments that include conflict and difference, and that being able to stick with that and adjudicate an end that is good for the collective. And that sounds very lofty, but if you do projects in cities where I have worked, you get exactly that sense, in, and you can measure it. You can do a before and after test of how comfortable one is and what one can point to in terms of that kind of civic problem solving that, that really is invaluable and leads to, no matter what the professional setting in which a student will then graduate to. And students who take part in those kinds of on-the-ground, community-engaged work point to that. They say, I never felt as comfortable, and maybe that's the sense of agency that Chris is talking about, I never felt as comfortable with so many different voices as I do now, having sat there and listened to everybody from the grandmother to the little kid, to the dean, to the faculty member, to the mayor, to the local business person, take a different perspective on a common issue, like whether to close down the elementary school in the middle of the neighborhood. Just listening and partaking of that kind of contentious debate on the ground is an enormous exercise, and it goes across disciplines. And so it brings artists and engineers and scientists together. You go from STEM to STEAM, my favorite, my favorite transition. So I, I think that we do have metrics. We can have metrics, but we ought to pin them to some of the loftier sense of civility and civics that we started with today. So essentially, you, you mentioned that, I was going to come back to the Franklin Project very quickly, is that that service year is meant to give a taste of that. So it's not just people of, of a certain socioeconomic strata that can afford to send their kid right. to have a service learning experience and not get paid. Because a lot of folk need to get paid. They don't have the luxury of not getting paid and having their lives subsidized. But if you go do something like City Year, I remember years ago I visited City Year uh, in, in D.C. and I spoke at City Year to one of their uh, annual events. I'll, I'll use the one in Boston. I spoke at the one in Boston. People know what City Year is. It's a year of service, kind of like Peace Corps, but for communities in America. Great program. And I remember talking to a, a woman who happened to be a single-parent mom, GED recipient, into a guy uh, who she happened to be, I think, African-American, and a gentleman who happened to be white was an MIT graduate. And they were both wearing their City Year jackets. They'd been on the same team working on some reading literacy issue and so all your points you're talking about, it was sort of folded into a year, very, very intense, and now they walk away, and I'm sure they're going to feel comfortable in the different environments that the, 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 the different environments going forward. So um, um, we can do it in miniature, we can do it in, in bigger pieces as well. Mm. I, you know, everything you're saying is completely compelling, and I think to turn it into a metric, we have to come up with a metric-sounding label yes. for this, right? Yes. <laughs> shouldn't be too hard. Okay, one more quick question, because we're running out of time. Michael Galligan-Sterl, President of the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, about 200 universities, a million students around the country. <clears throat> In the short description, uh, the sentence read, a robust civility to bridge rather than deepen, deepen 
differences. When you look at, at higher education, what is one experience or model on a university campus that you've seen where you actually have robust civility, conversation, that helps this generation understand how to build bridges instead of dividing? What does it physically look like in your experience? So I'll give you two. <laughs> I always go back to the arts um, as a fundamental bridge of, of civil communication that levels the playing field like nothing else and very quickly. So in Syracuse, we did a project on literacy and photography, again, in that same neighborhood I was talking about, a multi-generational project. And the narrative making and the voice that came forth from all directions, not to mention the extraordinarily beautiful photography and poetry that was written by kids who are otherwise written off by higher education in communities that don't get noticed that often. And the integration of Syracuse University students with these kids via common literacy and photography projects was an absolute slam dunk leveler and builder of civil, civic bridges. The second thing I would say is a more formal, typical, if you will, but incredibly important notion of intergroup dialogue. Pat Gurn's work at Michigan that has been done on many campuses around the country is extraordinary, structured intergroup dialogue led by very, very trained facilitators where vulnerabilities get brought to the table on all sides unexpectedly. And it's those vulnerabilities, once expressed, that actually create the civic bridge. That's a wonderful phrase, the civic bridge, also. That's, mm -hmm. that's a 501c3 waiting to happen right there. <laughs> that's right. It civic is. bridge. Heard it first here. Civic bridge. So uh, I, I would piggyback on what Nancy said in terms of the, the dialogue piece. And so this is borrowing a note from the, from the faith side. We're a Presbyterian uh, university or college, uh, at least our, those are our roots. And so this comes from um, uh, a concept that might be near and near to you as someone who's coming from uh, faith-based uh, colleges and universities. And this is vocational reflection or discernment. What am I called to be? And so we have a sophomore vocational reflection project that uh, SVRP, that we got money from the Council for Independent Colleges. We, we kind of created it, and we've gotten some money from Rick Ekman's group, the Council for Independent, Independent Colleges, and this program called NetView to help us take it to the next level. But from the last couple of years, from day one, we've been asking our students, uh, literally the first talk I give to them, what is your purpose, passion, and calling in life? And the answer is, I'm clueless. I say, join the club, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and we've been kind of creating exercises and programs that are culminating in their sophomore year where they have a sophomore reflection dialogue around the table with a trained moderator, a faculty or staff member. And we also lay on top of the purpose, passion and calling in life. What does it mean to be a good man 
are good men, actually, in 2015. So this is where the, being a, a male, an all-male institution plays to an advantage because you're able to get to a point, a point of vulnerability pretty quickly. So I'll close out my comment this way. So we did this, I think the first time we did it, um, we had dinner at my, a group of sophomores had dinner at my house, and I was at my, our table, and there were about 12, 10 students around the table and had dinner. And we went around, and I said, who are you? And one kid said, I'm weird. <laughs> and another kid said that I want to be Perseus, Pericles. I want to be Pericles. I want to bring truth to the people. I was very impressed that a 19-year-old kid knew who Pericles was, and kudos to our faculty for our Western culture class. And went around. One kid talked about wanting to be there for others. And, and, and as, a, the, the, as the dialogue progressed, one of the young men talked about his life and coming up in very horrific circumstances. In Appalachia, America, foster care when his parents died, a sibling who killed herself, drug addiction. I almost want to cry talking about it. So these young men who didn't know each other terribly well, it was randomly generated, they, they're in the same class for all sophomores, were creating this civic and civil bridge with their own personal experiences and points of vulnerability, just talking around a ta- table over pizza, right? And then we come up with other programs to keep that going. But there's a simple, powerful way that these, because by the end, my last comment, they were all cheering for each other to be successful. Hey, you know, it's okay that you're weird. And it's okay that you've gone through this. And it's okay, it's great that you want to be Pericles. And I know what you mean by that. And so that was a very powerful part. And it, it speaks to your dialogue piece. And it's very, very useful. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm in radio, so I really, I know what a hard stop is. And it's a hard stop. But I'm just, you know, I'm going to ask one more quick question. <laughs> Before I do that, I want to, I want to say that... Um, Another way I think we, we, we met, um, diminish the notion of civil discourse is we, we, we tend to invoke and call for it when things have gotten really bad and when there's a fight. And, and I think that you know, robust civil discourse is also about putting words, putting generative uh, imagination opening words around things we don't even quite know how to talk about yet. And there are so many of those right now. And I feel like we did this. I feel like so many things surfaced in this conversation uh, that I I hadn't heard before. And I, I too, again, feel like maybe part of the task is to, you know, what the story you just told, Chris, or or your story, Nancy, about uh, creating an experience where people can be vulnerable. These things have civic effect and they shape our capacity to be in the world effectively. And somehow, I think part of the task is to create that metric-sounding language that can put these things on a different platform. Um, so I want to thank you for this. Uh, I guess my, just very finally, very quickly, um, and you know, in, my, in my show I'll often ask at the end, you know, through all the experiences you've had and what we've been talking about, how, have you, how has your sense of what it means to be human evolved? And with this conversation in mind that we've just had about education and humanity and connecting who we are and who the world is, both institutionally and personally, you know, how would you answer that question, what you've learned about you know, what it means to be an educated human being? So I think what I would say is what I've learned is to look beneath the surface, 
that we are so quick to assume we understand what's there and not to really look for what can be there and that education is about what can be there. I'm not nearly as smart as Nancy, so I'm just going to tell a story. Um, Stories are better. So, and it, it speaks to the same point about basically not judging a book by a cover, by its cover, and also education is a lifelong process. This is not. This is a a film, not a snapshot. So, when I was in flight school as a, as an Air Force uh, officer, I had a, a a classmate named Mark, and his wife was Kathy. He was an Army Reservist. I was an Air Force officer. We were going to Fort Rucker helicopter training, and we would have these long talks about the Civil War and what it meant to society in America and, and, and the role of the Confederacy in our history. And he had had relatives that had fought what I like to call the losing side. <laughs> I'm just saying they did lose. <laughs> Point of fact, some of my friends forget that, but nonetheless. But, but we had this very, and, I, and I'm a mil, trained military guy, and so I, I knew the stories of the Confederate generals and, and understood where he was coming from. We'd have these great conversations. Uh, and then when we finished up, flight school, my wife and our, uh, we only had one son at the time, went down to Disney World. We got some pretty cheap tickets off uh, the Morale Welfare and Recreation Office at Fort Rucker. We drive down to, 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 to Tampa to stay with him because we're going to go to Disney World in Orlando the next day. So we show up with, my, with our four-year-old son, my wife being a, a colored, so-called colored from South Africa, who grew up in apartheid South Africa, by the way. We knock on the door. Kathy's there. She opens the door. Mark's there. We give them a hug. He's also a state trooper. Uh, he was a reservist, uh, but he was a state trooper. We talk for a few minutes. It's rather late. We go into the bedroom, and on his bed, there was a, a couple of pillows, and they were Confederate flag pillows. They were the Confederate flag. And this is interesting. <laughs> he takes the pillows, and he puts them in a, in a chest, and his wife, and they make the bed for us because it was a small apartment, and we stayed in their bed. They stayed somewhere else. It wasn't that kind of story. They stayed someplace else. But what was interesting is that I thought that that is, a, that is the best of a civil relationship, right, in so many ways. I know some of you are laughing trying to get your mind around this, but think about it, though. He did not run and hide that. We talked about what it meant to him. I understood that, and I respected that. I didn't, you know, a lot of people, it, it would have turned out very differently if a lot of other people of color had showed up at the door. Um, but it was not that. It was us. It was, it was, it was Mark and, and, and Kathy and Barbara and Chris and Cohen, and we knew each other, and we, we took time to respect our uh, respective, excuse me, points of view, which allowed us to have a deep relationship. And so that, that's the story that I use. It kind of speaks to some of the things you're speaking to. And uh, so it's about it. living with. Living with. Mm-hmm. Living with. I forgot to do this. Indulge me. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today in a civil conversation on higher education and the world and civil society, I'm speaking with Rutgers University Newark Chancellor Nancy Cantor and Christopher Howard, president of Hamden Sydney College of Virginia. We're with a live audience at the American Council of Education's 97th annual meeting in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Chris and Nancy, and thank you all for coming.